Perhaps the, the one of the biggest things that struck me about uh, your book is this idea of putting so many people in a double bind, not just the consumer, but even the professional, the parents. I've actually heard of putting people in a double bind as considered a form of torture. And somebody with a background in counterintelligence and having resigned around issues of torture in your service there. Can you speak to this? What I said earlier with anisognosia, it doesn't matter what you do, you're, you, you do this or this, you get the same outcome. You can't get out of the problem uh, because of how it's set up. So with anisognosia, if you agree with a doctor that says you have schizophrenia, for example, then you get diagnosed with schizophrenia and you get shoved into the psychiatric pipeline and, and you could be potentially harmed. If you disagree that you have schizophrenia, the doctor sees that as a symptom of your schizophrenia and diagnoses you anyways and shoves you into the pipeline. That's a double bind. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right. And just in general, the system is set up that way, especially for parents. And this is, I feel bad for a lot of parents that talk to me about the problems they're having with their kids, because many times schools will almost demand that the child be put on stimulant drugs uh, because the child's not paying attention in school and they see that as ADHD or bipolar or whatever it is. And in the schools, the administrators and the teachers are the ones making this determination. They have formally no training to do so, but they do it anyways. And they demand the parent take the child to a pediatrician to get a diagnosis of ADHD. It's kind of interesting to be looking for a diagnosis and to get uh, a prescription for Ritalin so they'll behave themselves in school, they'll pay attention. So that, in essence, the, the system is set up to for conformity in school. But if the parent is recognizes some of these dangers I'm talking about, they'll resist that. The problem is if they resist too much and or if the school pushes too much, the parent can be seen as neglecting medical treatment of their child. Just like if a parent was told their child had diabetes, but the parent refused to provide insulin, that's considered child abuse or child neglect. And then um, possibly the child taken away from the parent or the parent charged with child neglect. And those things have happened. Luckily, not a whole lot. But I worry that it's going to happen with increasing frequency as the, uh, the industry gets more power. And so a parent is in a double bind there with the child. If the parent agrees, the child can be potentially harmed. If the parent disagrees, the child can be potentially harmed. There's no way out of that if the schools push it, if the parent is resistant enough. Individuals face that same problem depending again on the the proclivities of the clinician and the resistance of the person being targeted. It's It's a sad state of affairs. I don't know what the answer is. To the professionals, as you've said, as well. Oh, yes. If if a professional, in, my, in our case, the people within our organization who try to remain humane with the, those we try to help, that humanity is seen as a threat. And we are many times censored or ostracized or, worse yet, um, official action taken against us or our licenses for practicing outside the so-called standard of care, which, by the way, doesn't exist anywhere. Um, There is no standard of what you do in these situations that is is official. It's just this loose conventional wisdom that people think they know of 
fact, this myth of mental illness persists. You talk about following the money. The two reasons that it continues, I think, is because it it's a system. The professions are there and they employ a lot of people and they provide a lot of people with a sense of meaning in life. That's the work that they do. And so it's hard just to say to them, your system that you're working in is harmful to people. You have to change that because that's not going to happen. And, and by the way, they are the authorities in the field. They've been given the authority in our culture. And so most people will just acquiesce because, for instance, if I said something to a person because I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm licensed and I've been doing this for 25 years. And so they trust me. And unfortunately, that trust isn't warranted in many cases, not with me, hopefully, but with mainstream psychiatry and other allied professions. But the bigger part, I think, is the money involved in the whole system. And this is the same with any kind of system. The, within uh, our field, there are a lot of organizations and agencies that make a lot of money, like pharmaceutical companies, but even organizations like NAMI, National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, uh, American Psychiatric Association, Psychological Association, other places like that that, that uh, owe their existence to the fact that there are drugs being peddled for these problems. And so it's hard to fight against that, that financial interest. Um, that's, you know, that's the, the simple uh, way to put it. We, we just don't have the money to counteract that kind of power. We actually had a, a, a phenomenal court case. Johnson & Johnson was fined $8 billion for withholding information about the harmful effects of a particular drug on adolescents. The, the, the jury awarded the defendant, the uh, the plaintiff, $8 billion. That's incredible. Now, it was appealed and later reduced to several million, several hundred million dollars. But still, the point I'm making, going to make here is that even with that kind of financial hit that pharmaceutical companies take, it's just a drop in the bucket compared to the money they make in this whole system. And so it, the cost of that would just be passed on to consumers um, and Johnson & Johnson will continue doing what they're going to do. It's been reported that there are at least two pharmaceutical company representatives lobbying each congressional representative in our country. That's a lot of lobbying power, which makes us you know, kind of uh, pessimistic about trying to get some change in the system because just our organization alone we're a nonprofit, all-volunteer organization. We don't have funding like that anywhere close to that. So it's hard to fight against that. I've, I've participated in congressional meetings in the past. I think I've given that up because of this problem. I, if I go to Capitol Hill and I talk to representatives about the dangers of the system, uh, are they going to listen to me if right after I leave, a pharmaceutical rep comes in who's who's providing millions of dollars to that congressperson's campaign? No, they're just going to be courteous to me and then throw away whatever we give them when I leave. That's not the way to fight this, I don't think. The way I think to fight it is at grassroots, which is what this book is about. It's trying to get to the, the consumers and to try to convince the consumers that this product that they're buying is dangerous, potentially dangerous, 
And if they quit buying the product, then the people who make the product will go bankrupt. So tell us about what we need to look out for. Say if I'm going to the to the doctor because I do feel like I can't focus or I'm depressed, I can't, I'm unmotivated, I'm feeling anxious. I think most people are feeling probably all of those things today. What would you warn against? What, what kind of things should they look out for so that they make sure and get the right help versus the wrong help? Well, the problem is there's not a whole lot of resources available for them. I mean, there are, uh, there are places that are few and far between that are alternatives to, or yeah, alternatives to the, the orthodox medical model of mental illness. But by large, what you have available to you is going to be the conventional system. I actually work within the conventional system, but if you ended up coming to me, you're not going to get a conventional response, even though I do everything I'm supposed to do. I have a license, I can maintain my license, I, you know, I, I, I do no harm, I, all those kinds of things. But um, I, I don't have any, uh, I don't pretend that the things that I'm doing are treating you for an illness. And I make that very clear to people that what I'm doing is I'm here to help you change to the extent that you want to change. And I have no secret answers to make that change any easier. There are no therapies, there are no tricks, there are no workbooks or special programs that make that kind of change easier to do. It's always difficult. One thing I think that people ought to do, be, be uh, sure that they do if they seek out help, is to keep this in mind what I'm saying and maybe interview the people they're, go they're thinking about going to. Interview them about how do they view these problems? Are they medically minded or not? And because there are many people who are not medically minded, they might be called humanist, existential, person-centered. Those are some of the words used to describe people that basically reject a medical model. Ask them how they work with people who are struggling and find somebody who's willing to talk with you about the problems that you're dealing with instead of labeling you and prescribing psychiatric drugs or approaching the problem as if it is an illness, but it's not. Any final words, Chuck, that you would like to leave us with? Well, I just, a lot of what I've talked about, I know is, is uh, hard to believe for many people. If you told me this 30 years ago or so when I was in my uh, graduate school, I would not believe it. So it, for me, it's taken being in the field, working with these issues daily, researching all of the the problems at length, interacting with colleagues, even those who agree and disagree with me. Uh, so I can imagine it's hard for your viewers to to trust this. All I ask is they read the book. You can get it. Obviously, these issues are very detailed. It's hard to get them all out on one show with you or even many shows. They can see the, the evidence for it in the book. And I'm not just trying to sell the book, although, of course, I would like to sell the book. And I would encourage people, get the ebook. It's a lot cheaper than the print book. It doesn't matter to me. But it, you can go through and, and try to decide for yourself uh, what I'm saying about this if you buy into the reasoning that I'm using. 
to attack the industry. And I want to give listeners again, the name of the book is Smoke and Mirrors, How You Were Being Fooled About Mental Illness, An Insider's Warning to Consumers. And this, the research is exhaustive in this. There is no question about how well this was researched. I mean, you're uh, your bibliography at the end is just pages and pages long. Uh, I wondered how long it took you to, to write this book. How long did it take you to put this together? It took me 15 years to write. So I, I started writing this in 2005. I haven't been writing it for 15 years. Many times I lost interest, put it on the shelf, thought maybe it was, it was a worthless endeavor because people aren't going to listen anyways questioning my own views of things. In fact, during the time of writing this, I made some changes in how I see things based on the research that I looked at. Um, I tried to be as honest as I could with myself, intellectually honest, and not make any claims that I didn't think had evidence to at least be wary of. And so I would pick it up from now and, now and then and, and, and work on it and over a 15 year time period it finally came to fruition and then within the last couple of years i really pushed hard on getting it done and again where can people get a hold of this book if they if they want to and get a hold of you if they want to look you up they can get a hold of me at my website chuckruby.com and uh the book i know amazon has it bars and nobles uh there's a like five or six conventional sites that sell books online um, they all have it. Well, I, I have to thank you for your incredible work, your ethics, and uh, this very powerful book that, by the way, has received rave reviews by a number of leading professionals in the field. Well, you're welcome. And thanks for the kind words. I appreciate that. Clearly, you are one of the top thought leaders in the country around reform when it comes to how to improve our 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 human well-being. And so I just want to thank you so much for all the hard work and sacrifice you've done in, in this book and, and, and the sacrifice it's taken to go against the mainstream narrative at times. I know that can't be an easy thing to do.